Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. The reason I've called this podcast the Why Behind the What is I truly believe that the what can start a great conversation, but the why can open up one's soul. The why is the catalyst for what we do. It is the catalyst for the what. And so for much of the season, I've been talking about why contemplative and ancient spiritual practices can rekindle our faith, how it can heal our souls, how it can transform our lives. And I really, really believe that especially now in this season of pandemic and protests, that contemplative practices such as these are even more essential not only so we can be well with our souls, but that we can maintain this work for the rest of our lives. And so what this work we've been talking about at least the last couple weeks is we're talking about whiteness and what white people need to do to dismantle racism and systemic injustice, becoming aware of white privilege and white supremacy so that we can undo it and be dismantlers of it. And so in this episode, I talk with my friend and colleague, Dave Capozzi. He's based outside of Boston. Dave is a former church planner, and now he works in preventative work. And he and I talk about whiteness. We talk about our mess-ups. We talk about the importance of shutting up and listening and checking our motives. But most impactful to me, actually, was Dave's theological introduction that we as white people, we need to be healed from the leprosy of whiteness. I think that'll mess with you a bit. But as you can see, uh, he brings up how Jesus uh, healing those with leprosy, how that pertains to us as white people today. You'll hear partway through this episode, there's a change in sound quality. We had some issues with our recording equipment, but regardless, it sounds okay, and uh, it is a great conversation. If you've been enjoying this podcast, again, it would be great if you can rate and review it on iTunes. You can do that on your laptop. You can do that through the Apple Podcast app on your phone. Simply go to this podcast's page, click the review section, hit the stars, hit submit. You're good to go. If And if you need help, I have an instructional video on my website for you, nathanalbert.com slash podcast, that'll actually show you how to do this. I'm making it easy for you, friends. Also, sharing it on social media uh, helps get the word out to others as well. As always, this podcast was written, recorded, and edited on Monacan land. And with that, here is my interview with Dave Capozzi. Dave Capozzi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nathan Albert. It's good to be here. I'm glad you're here. I want to start by just having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are professionally and who you are personally. Got it. Uh, currently... I work in sort of prevention work in the city of Brockton, Massachusetts. I do prevention around um, drugs and alcohol and gambling. Um, so I work with a lot of high school age students um, on sort of, you know, helping them think through uh, ways that they can, you know, keep themselves involved in activities that will, you know, keep them from loneliness and give them something that also prevents them from sort of going down roads that might be um, leading to drugs and alcohol and other sort of uh, addictive behaviors. And it's also great, like they do a lot of the advocacy work around themselves. Um, so that's, it's been really, really great work. Uh, and so that's sort of what I do professionally right now. 
And personally, uh, you know, I'm just uh, I'm a 39-year-old guy who's uh, got three kids, and I live I live in Massachusetts, and just kind of making it through every day of this pandemic, just like anybody else, you know, just trying to survive. So um, if I can get outside, I do, which is a rare thing around here, you know, in Boston. It's not quite as nice down where you are. Um, but yeah, that's me. I um, I have my hands full pretty often with work and the kids, and uh, it's not too bad right now. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a pandemic. We do. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of protests going on. We do. Indeed. How or what has been your reaction to the events that are unfolding this summer of 2020? Um. So uh, it's. I think like everybody, a, a lot, it's a, it's a lot to take in. Um, it's not new information. I think, you know, like the, the, that's the horrible thing. The horrifying fact of this is that Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are um, real people who have really been murdered by police um, brutality and systemic racism. And the, the horrifying thing is that it's not a new reality. Um, what I'm, my reaction, um, apart from sort of just feeling all of that is also noticing how different the conversation is now than mm. it was a year or two ago. I've really noticed how among white folks that I'm connected to there, there used to be this sort of visceral gut reaction to if they saw this kind of thing come out on social media or on the news, they'd immediately start to you know, defend themselves, calling them not race, themselves not racist. But you see a lot more people, at least in my circle, who have sort of shifted and are starting to see something different. So I've I've been a little um, I've been pleasantly surprised by that. So um, that's been interesting. I've also you know through this I've attended a couple of rallies. Um, I'll be attending a couple more on Saturday in the area, and um, you know just trying to listen, trying to pay attention trying to make sure that I show up um, and that I continue to, to be there and to vocalize whatever I can as a, as a white person who has sort of privilege and access to um, places that uh, a lot of black folks have been prevented from having access to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. All right, let's talk whiteness. You're white. I'm white. Most of the time, us white people, we don't talk about our whiteness, right? We don't, we don't see our whiteness as even a part of our identity. Um, we don't talk about race. It's awkward for us. Um, so I'd love for you to share what's been your journey discovering your whiteness. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I love that. So the, my friend once asked me, when did you realize you were white? So I mm -hmm. guess I'll start with that. Um, for me, the when I first realized it, I was 26. Um, wow. And yeah, and so I, it's not because I didn't have friends of color um, or anything like that. It's basically that I grew up evangelical and I grew up in sort of the era of colorblindness um, where, you know, it doesn't matter what your skin color is, we're all the same kind of thing. But when I was 26, I was in seminary at Gordon Conwell's urban ministry campus in Boston where uh, Kate, also went right yeah um and uh i was in it was the very first class that i took and it was with sung chan ra and he was 
talking about racism. And they were only like, it was a class of about 50. And I was one of like three white people in it. Um, our friend TC was in there too, uh, TC Moore. Yeah. And, and so I, um, I kind of was listening to this conversation. I knew nothing, nothing at the time. And so one of the white students that came from the main campus, which was in a more affluent part of Massachusetts, came down for their, you know, urban experience. And they said that racism isn't a problem in America anymore. And it certainly isn't a problem in the church. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what to think of that, but the room sort of erupted. And people were just so taken aback, so furious, and it just felt so heavy, something I'd never really experienced before. And it was in that context that I started to finally realize what it meant for me to be a white male Christian um, in America. Uh, and it just like, it was, it was like one of those like blinding light kind of moments where you couldn't see anything otherwise, you know? Um, people were just so upset that this other white um, brother in the faith didn't see or hear their experience and was actually arguing against it. And so, yeah, that's sort of where it started for me. And from that point on, I just couldn't shake it. You know, it's been levels and levels and levels and it's painful and there's layers that are, that are always going to be peeling off um, and always going to be a part of who I am. Yeah. But it's, it's been about, I was, you know, 13 years ago. And so what's been the, um, like besides that, event what has been some of the work you've done as you've in those 13 years are there significant other events all that sort of stuff yeah so uh at that school you didn't really have a choice it was it was sort of baked into the to the fabric of the institution was talking about institutional racism um especially in the church and so I went and I just didn't have a choice but to listen over and over and over, listen, listen, listen. Um, you know, and I basically made that my goal. Um, I was told early on that that was what I should be doing is paying attention and listening so that I can understand. And so anywhere I could listen, I would go. I would, if there was someone speaking somewhere that was talking about it, I would, I would show up. Um, I changed my career because I was working in finance at the time. And I quit that and started working among people experiencing homelessness in Brockton and Quincy. Um, and so I just sort of wanted to get into the places where people are being sort of pushed to the margins, economically under-resourced and like disenfranchised kind of people. And for me, that was one of the ways that I sought to just let it soak over me. And so the work, you know, whatever came of it, you know, like getting involved in legislative actions around like criminal justice reform and education reform. That's stuff after I listened for like eight years, mm. <laughs> you know, it took a, it took a really long time for things to sink in. Uh, for me, I, I had the language, but I didn't, it didn't settle all the way into me. I didn't digest a lot of it fully. So I just had to keep listening and, and, you know, especially to my friends and to, um, you know, listen to podcasts and you name it. I was reading it, listening to it. Uh, the book um, uh, by, you know, why is it? The Cross and the Lynching Tree oh, yeah, um, James Cone. by James Cone was really influential to me. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You mentioned, and I think this is really true. I think there's <clears throat> layers, right? Where a lot of times we, we think we should, we see these events and we don't initially maybe we don't know how to respond 
And then maybe we get to the point where we've seen enough where we respond in some way, usually like through a tweet or an Instagram post, right? Right, exactly. Which is fine, right? Like it's getting things vocalized. But then there's, as you go, it goes deeper and deeper, right? Like you mentioned policy, systemic things, voting, uh, where you use your money. So can you share a little bit about like the depthness? Because I feel a lot of us as white people, we think, oh, well, I'm calling out that that's racist and I realize I have racial biases and we stop there. Or we think, well, I have, I need to, I'll end racism by becoming friends with a bunch of black people or people of color and that's enough. But it can't end there. So can you share a little bit about those different levels that you've seen? Yeah, man, that's a good question. Uh, So one example for me is I used to have, like, I was really influenced by Anabaptist thinking, which was like this kind of separatist movement within Christianity, um, which I still have a lot of love for. But there was this time when I just believed that you shouldn't vote because that meant that you were pledging allegiance in some way to America. Um, and as as time went on, and I started to listen to my friends of color, like, you know, that's that's like the height of privilege to be able to say that you're just not going to vote when there are people suffering who, you know, fought and died so that they could get the right to vote. Mm. Uh, it didn't take long for me to be convinced by that, but I didn't hear it for a very long time. Mm. So I held on to that belief really strongly. And then, you know, uh, eventually when I first finally listened to that debate, I voted again, <laughs> you know, it, and it's just, it's, it was sort of one of those simple like processes of, okay, now, now I'm paying attention a little bit more, but the, the, the thing is um, that you often just don't see yourself unless you're confronted with yourself constantly. So one thing that is difficult is if you're living in a context in which people look and think a lot like you, you're very, it's even if you're around like super liberal or progressive people, you're not always going to get that sort of rubbing against each other that like really agitates you in a way that you change. Mm -hmm. And so living in Brockton, I was constantly faced with people that experience life in a very different way than I do. And it's just constantly uncomfortable. Um, And it's one of those things where for me, just being in those relationships, you're always being pushed to not just have your feedback loop uh, on on social media where it's like, oh, these people all agree with me right. going down the line, um, Facebook, Instagram, you know. Um, and I think being able to be in that context has made it so that when when there was an opportunity to fight for some particular legislative issue coming up um, in, the st- in the state or in the country, it was not a question. I was listening to friends who were like, this, this like affects me on a very personal level and if they're you know if they're a friend of mine i want to fight with them Mm -hmm. so that's kind of that that for me that final move which is fraught with a lot of complications if you're a white person that moves to a a city that is you know um predominantly people of color it that brings its own challenges and you got to watch your privilege in a lot of those ways too um but it's one of those things that like you just honestly i don't think it's possible if you're a white person to not make a, hun- a ton of mistakes in this journey of sort of repenting from racism. Yeah. Um, and I think I have, I've made a ton, a ton of mistakes. That actually was, this is one of my questions. I'd love to hear, how have you screwed it up? Oh God, how have I not? 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There's, there's some really big ones that I, that are, that affect other people immediately, but I'll just say I got sort of, I was a part of like, let's just do this. When I went to Haiti in 2011, after the earthquake, um, it was one of those kind of, you know, a lot of people did that. It was a, a way to help. And mm-hmm. it just felt like this major thing happened. Um, uh, my wife and I chose to adopt a boy down there without sort of a racialized lens on what it meant for a white family to adopt a black child. Um, and as time went on, like the only people adopting these black children were white families moving to Maine or, you know, Indiana or Ohio. And as time went on and I was lit, I was, I started to go to seminary and these other things, I started to realize, um, not that I made a mistake because I would never sit like Andy, my son is, he's 19. He's an incredible kid and he's still in connection with his biological family in a lot of ways. I feel like we've, we've worked through a lot of this stuff, but at the same time, um, you know, we were being praised as heroes by a lot right. of the white people like, right. that we knew. And right. I just felt like it's way more complicated than that. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a mistake. I would just say it's, it's not as clean as people think. These things that look like, oh, look at this amazing work that this white guy's doing with black communities or adoption. It just is so much more complicated. So I've learned a ton through that. Um, I'm so glad he's a part of our family. Um, but he's, you know, that, that whole thing, um, about having sort of to raise a black son when I don't understand the black experience, um, is, is very complicated. I think it's important too, that I think as white people, we need to be okay with screwing it up. Like if we're going to dismantle our privilege and white supremacy and systemic injustice and racism, we are going to screw it up. We already have, first off. Yeah. And we're going to keep doing it as a way of freeing ourselves to say, I can keep going. Because um, I think sometimes with this, we, we say an offensive thing and it's like all the work is done. Like I'm back at grounds. I'm back at the starting line. Is it even worth it anymore? I can't even, I can't even hang out with these people and not say something offensive. So it, but knowing that, yeah, you're going to say some real stupid stuff and, uh, it's okay. Well, it's not okay, but it, it, it happens in this process. It's just going to happen. It is. And I think that's, I think we need to know that and hear that and recognize that. Yeah, I think so. I, Cause I think the truth is, and something that I've learned through this process is that, you know, we're all dehumanized in the process of creating this, these racial identities. We've all been dehumanized, hmm. white people and black people. Um, and so it's part of the process is learning how you as a white person have been dehumanized. You're, hmm. you're, no, you're not, you're a product of a system um, and you're, we're all complicit based on the things that we've received and then like that, we've, that we have to sort of unlearn and, and relearn and all that sort of stuff. But we're not, you know, in a sense, there's this sort of unifying thing that we've we've all sort of lost the image that we were given at birth, are mm. um, you know, and so I think it's just learning learning that process um, to be gentle with yourself, but also to hold yourself to a really high standard of just be like 
I am gonna I am gonna screw this up. I am gonna make mistakes. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't justify those like the mistakes that I make, but they're going to happen because I'm a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just about making sure that when that happens, you're quick to say, "I'm so sorry. Um, I want to do better." Yeah, so much of this is a process of unlearning, and and I've talked to a lot of even on this podcast and elsewhere, even the religious traditions that a lot of us grew up in, we come to a point where we have to unlearn toxic theology or damaging views that we've come to believe as truths, right? These faithful religious truths or doctrines. And we have to unlearn that uh, in order to have our faith develop and change and understand the expansiveness of the divine and there's something similar with our whiteness that we have to unlearn so much of the system that we're a part of. Like we don't even we don't even know the whole magnitude of the system. And once we start learning, we realize how much we have to unlearn. Yeah, it's right? so true. It is. It's funny because I, I I did this uh, study once about like leprosy in you know the scriptures and a lot of the ways that we are brought up to think as white men, especially is that we're sort of the ones that come we're jesus right we come and we heal people that are broken mm. but i kind of learned this this idea that the leprosy is the skin disease that i i have a skin disease i was born with this whiteness you know that i need healing from the from jesus from the people that are mm. suffering and that and i think that's that whole flip is so long and hard to learn that you're not the savior, that you're not the person that comes and brings the good news. You're the one who needs it desperately. Um, and I think that's, that for me, growing up with the ex- insane amount of privilege and access that I had, I had to learn how far away from Jesus uh, and the kingdom of God that I was. Uh, and that, that has been a, a serious, serious learning curve. Wow, that is, a, that is a great illustration. I love that. I want to talk more about that. Go deeper. Go deeper. <laughs> like, <laughs> get all pastory on me and and preacher and. It's been a while. It's been a while. I feel like what what we okay. So you know the people that that sort of run the show mm-hmm. um, are the Romans in the first century context, right? We know this. The scriptures the scriptures are written from the from the vantage point of the oppressed. But the oppressor took the scriptures and made it their own mm. and and used it to oppress. And so sure. there's this weird, weird thing that we got handed down to us um, that sort of we believe that we're Jesus going into the world and helping the people that are in third world countries or the homeless or that, this or that. When the truth is that when we're occupying these these bodies that that are closer to the you know to um Pontius Pilate and uh centurions than anybody else in the scriptures we we once we realize that it's time for us to start to listen mm-hmm. to the oppressed knowing that we need healing from them that they have somehow um you know that whole the whole idea of the book the cross and the lynching tree is that Christ is in solidarity with those who suffer right yeah. and if Christ is in solidarity with those who suffer and people who were lynched are closer to the heart of Christ than myself, then what does that mean for me? And, and to carry around this skin, um, this disease, I need healing from 
the people who've been oppressed by my people, by the ones that have the skin disease. Gosh. That's really I don't know. Good. I haven't created, I haven't done a sermon on that one. That's just off the cuff. So. That's fine. No, <laughs> it's not how we as white people are responding to all this. It's not right. Like it's, we are saying, oh, well, it was their choice or, you know, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have looked suspicious or he shouldn't have had a gun or he should have listened to the cops. Like we, we don't have that mentality of we need to be healed. We don't have that mentality. And it, um, and that's why I think I just, I love that illustration. Like we need, not even an illustration, that truth, I should say. We do. We need, we need that healing. And then once we're, once we're like, you know, this whole concept of, um, I've been seeing a lot of people post this thing around, like you have to get yourself right first and then you, you know, right, get it right here and then go out and do it. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, your podcast is a lot about that, about being whole and being in a good place, um, having sort of a contemplative approach to justice, really important. But there's also this truth that there's no way you're ever going to be pure enough to do the work of justice. Right, right. And, and so I think you just have to sort of, you're, you're on this journey of figuring it out, becoming yeah. more and more cleansed of that and allowing yourself to be subject to, um, in a lot of ways, people who experience the pain. I see a lot of these, you know, memes going around where, you know, it's a privilege to learn about whiteness and racism, not to have been sort of impacted by it, not, yeah. not to have lived it. And I, that's true of me. It's a privilege. Yeah. I, I'm walking it the whole way through. Yeah. So I think for us, we do have a lot of legislative work that needs to do like uh, systems work that we need to attack as white folks, but the inner healing, um, I think comes from, from submitting ourselves to people of color who faced um, a long history of oppression in this country. Yeah. And you're describing too, the whole idea of like being a contemplative activist, right? Like you are active, you are doing the work of justice and then you have to find ways to not only contemplate what's happening, but do the contemplative to be able to sustain yourself for this work. Um, I'd love to hear, I'll go this, this way. Are there, what are some of those contemplative practices for you as you've done this work that have sustained you and kind of been a balm to your soul as well as that has become a catalyst for you to keep going? Yeah, good question. Um, it's complicated for me. I will say that I have adopted um, meditative practices uh, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, music is a huge thing for me, like playing music, uh, guitar, drums. It's like it goes into, you go into a different world. Actually, one of the most um, cathartic practices for me before all this was just going to the gym and playing basketball by myself, just shooting around. It's like the greatest way for my mind to process all that's going on up there. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say back in 2018, I crashed really hard because I didn't keep those practices sort of constant in me and, mm. and all, all the things that I had been learning and experiencing just were too much for me to deal with and call it fragility, call it whatever you want. It messed me up. And I think it's, um, it is really important to surround yourself 
with people who are encouraging you to stay in, in those sort of meditative practices, those contemplative ways of thinking and, and approaching just life in general, because life is pain. Um, and you got to sort of get, come back and get centered. Journaling, I, I, I journal like crazy. I got away from all that stuff when I was struggling. Um, and so for me, it's important to sort of just make sure I hold on to that stuff. And I'm trying to get back to them more consistently, but it's been a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask, what else do I want to ask? I want to ask, um, if you had to, I mean, if you, I mean, use me as, as an example. You're talking to your fellow white dude. Um, what would you say to me or others uh, as we are on this quest of dismantling white supremacy and privilege and a quest to become anti-racist? What do you say to your fellow white friends, colleagues of the work that we need to do? I think it depends on the person and the place that they're in. Um, the best advice that I've gotten in particular, in, depending on the context, is to shut up. <laughs> um, and I think when it comes to, I think it's only when we shut up that we'll be invited to have a voice in a different way. And I had, that took a long time for me to learn. So in classes, I remember I'd speak up and voice my opinion back when I was learning all this stuff. And it was just like, you could, the room just fell flat and it'd be like, what? shut up. Like, we don't care. You know, like, what do you have to say? Yeah. And I think we're, because a lot of us, we just get so excited about what we're learning and we, we want to show how woke we are. I don't know about you, Nate, but I've seen, I've been in a lot of context with pro progressive white folks that turns into the woke Olympics, mm -hmm. where it's like one person's wanting up another about how woke they are. Uh, and citing all of the right language to show how aware they are of their whiteness. And I got to say, a lot of times, I think that is, it's a trap. It's a way for us to make a name for ourselves on the backs of oppressed people. Mm. And, and we got to check our motives on that stuff. So I would say my, my advice, if you're just learning this stuff, shut up and check your motives. Just, just know where your heart is in it. People will forgive you when you mess up. Like this is, these are the mistakes I made. That's why I'm saying I didn't shut up and I didn't check my motives enough, but just, you know, I, that would be my major piece of advice. Just listen, do do as much listening as you can. Nathan, I saw that you posted all the, all these podcasts to be listening to right now. Listen to those podcasts, so, you know, do, do that kind of work. And um, I think, I think that's where you should start. Just listen. I think so many of us want a quick fix because it's uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable talking about this. We see the ugliness of racism rearing its head all the time, and we just want to be done with it. Like, let's fix it and be done, rather than realizing we've barely started. I mean, we've barely, barely started. I mean, I was talking to someone, an, a white gentleman, uh, who doesn't believe in systemic racism. He was telling me that today. And he felt like after MLK, everything ended. And now we live in an equity. He said, we live in an equitable society. Um, and, but we don't like, we don't. And the, the, prog the progression that we've made since MLK hasn't even, I mean, we're barely a f in the front door. Yeah. It's, it's so true. 
the individualized culture that we live in and the fast pace we want it done and move on, it, it's, that's not this work. No, it's true. And so shutting up and listening is not for like a blackout Tuesday or, um, or a week when all these protests are happening. Like you said, this is going to be years of your life. It is. And, and it'll be good for you. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's funny that my favorite, when I was at a rally a couple of days ago in Brockton, um, my favorite sign was just this little girl who held it up that said black lives matter even when they're not trending. And I feel like, you know, this, this happens, this has been happening since, you know, oh, it's incredible that we have Rodney King's video because someone had a gigantic, someone must've had like a big old video camera from 1991. Yes. And, and now, you know, since iPhones, like iPhones are a gift in this way that we get to see and experience what's been going on all this time. Mm -hmm. So it's not new, but for white folks, you know, every time there's a cluster of police brutality, like murders or something like this, it becomes a hot topic and then it dies down for a while. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important that once, like if, and hopefully when this dies down for a little while, where there's no, no more killings, that people are relentless in the way that they're seeking information and speaking out against racism right. in all of the ways that it affects our society, in your, in your business, in your, like your local community, you name it, like finding where racism is rearing its ugly head. Cause it is everywhere. Yeah. And it's not something that's viral on a, a new hashtag. It's not. Yeah. It is. It is our history as a nation and it, will be our future history. It is. Well. I, yeah. You know, actually, it's one of those things. I just, I was thinking about this a lot this week that I hear it on, I hear it all over the place. Everyone's like, how do we address our history of racism? And, and it's not a history. It's still present. Yeah. Like it's not gone. And just because Martin Luther King did some outstanding things and Malcolm X and you know, you name the leader, like they've, they've moved things forward in some capacity. It's baked into the fabric of this, the DNA of this country. Mm -hmm. So, so the truth is that unless we find a way to like really, really make a major shift, it's going to always be baked in in some way. Yeah. And I think that's the real rub. And that's what makes things so difficult is, you know, there's that, that mantra, no justice, no peace. There won't be peace for this country for a very long time because there won't be real justice for black and brown folks for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And that is a horrifying perspective, um, prospective, not perspective, that too maybe. But it's that is the way that things function in this country. And we need to be aware of that if we're going to fight hard um, to make it change. Yeah. It's got to be drastic. Are there resources you would recommend for people? Like, are there, I mean, you mentioned James, James Cohn's book, um, but are there resources, websites, people that you'd say, listen to these, listen to these, read these? Yeah. Um, there are so many. <laughs> there are true. Um, 
I feel like I'm trying to think. So for the white folks out there, um, there's a really great book called, um, well, White Fragility is a good book. Um, Raising White Kids is a really mm -hmm. good book. Um, it's helpful to think through what it means to grow up white in this country. Um, so even if you're a, an adult and you don't have kids, it's actually a really helpful book. Um, oh, man, that's such a, if you're in a context where you can go and listen, then go do that. Be in a spit. I mean, right now, obviously during a pandemic, that's not going to happen. So maybe try YouTube. There are a lot of really great resources. Um, there's people like, uh, our, friend Dominique Gilliard he's he's got a book called Rethinking Incarceration mm. um it's really phenomenal uh Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson's really good um obviously um Between the World and Me um you know that's Tanahasi Coates mm -hmm. uh Van Jones is really good um I think he contributes on CNN a lot um so go and look up you know on CNN there's uh Trevor Noah is has a phenomenal I would I would say like his his lens coming from because he came from South Africa and apartheid. I mean, his autobiography, um, or it's I think it's a story of his mom, um, is just really powerful. Like li mm -hmm. listen to as much of Trevor Noah as you can too. I would say, but there's so many. I I'm, I hate the, even thinking about the people that I've left off. <laughs> but you know, there's so many. Yeah. But yeah. It, the the best thing is being in proximity to. You know, being having sort of the ability to to feel what it's like to be uncomfortable um, in the conversation. There's no there's no substitute for that. No book mm -hmm. or video can replace that. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about David Swanson's book, his new book, Rediscovering or Rediscipling the White Church, is he talks in there like this isn't if you're an all white church in all white Iowa, you can still do this important work. Um and you need to for, for true solidarity. And I think that's such an important point. Like, yeah, if you're a church of 75 in a town of a hundred and there are no white, uh, there are only white people, you're not going to become this multi-ethnic church. Okay. But you can still s stand in solidarity with other people in our country for the common good, um, and do good, good work. Um, and it's a good reminder, right? Cause I think, um, yeah, we, we have to continue to do this work. True. And David's a great, he's a great resource for white folks. Um, he yeah. was a great mentor and friend to me and I haven't read his book yet, so I'm not being as good a friend as he's been to me. So I'll read that. But <laughs> actually you bring up something about, you know, multi-ethnic churches, which is the kind of church that I pastored. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mistakes within the multi-ethnic church movement that, mm -hmm. um, mostly led by white male pastors that we need to look at too. Um, yeah. uh, so, you know, that's another one of the, you know, it's hard to call them mistakes because they're just, there's, there's redemptive things along the way right? Um, and in the process, but there's some mistakes made in that process for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the more you see it when your lenses change, like you said earlier, you see it everywhere. It's in housing policy. It's in schools. It's in churches. It's in politics. It's in policy. Um, and the, when you start to see, you will see it and see it and see it and see it. Um, and you, you have to see it. Like you just have to, you have to see it and you have to do the work of seeing it.
And I understand it's hard for people. I get it. I understand that it's difficult to, to hear things that feel really disruptive to your life. And you want to, you know, most people, I think all people really just want to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people's belief systems and worldviews keep them feeling safe. And if you're poking holes at that, be aware that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like that someone has, has a foundation that makes them able to process the world. And that's a major thing to try to disrupt. So one of the things for white folks is to really have compassion on one another. Um, even though we're all really passionate once we wake up to this reality, it's important to, to listen enough to our white um, family members and friends so that we can understand what it is that keeps them feeling safe. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. If people want to connect with you in the interweb, how can, how can people do that? Interweb. I'm on, I'm on them. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I think it's just Dave Capozzi at Dave Capozzi. Yeah. We're going to get four more people to follow you after this episode. So look (laughs) out. Look out. (laughs) Well, Dave, thanks for being a part of this podcast, for taking time out of your day um, and speaking some, some good truths and, um, and the work you're doing and will continue to do. So I appreciate it. My pleasure, Nathan. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. And so friends, as you continue to do the work of dismantling racist systems, as you listen to others, check your motives, and as you continue to be healed from the leprosy of whiteness, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness. 